This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So our lecture for today is Christianity as True, True Philosophy, the Theology of St. Justin Martyr. Who is Justin Martyr? He is the first Christian to make a serious attempt to determine the relations between Christianity and philosophy, between faith and reason. So that's Henry Chadwick. Uh, from Leslie Bernard, the apostolic fathers had dealt with practical day-to-day -day problems of the church, so the fathers that preceded Justin. Speculative thought in Christian philosophy begin with Justin. And finally, Hans von Kampenhausen, nearly all of the Greek fathers of the church were consciously or unconsciously his imitators. Very briefly on his life and works, he was born in Samaria around 100 uh, it doesn't appear that he himself was a Samaritan. It's more likely that he's actually from a Roman background. His three major works of the dialogue with Trypho. So the dialogue takes place around 135 AD, around the period of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And it's with a Jewish interlocutor, which we'll return to, probably put in its final written form around 160 AD. It's a debate over the Jewish law. So it starts with basically Trypho asking Justin, why is it that you Christians don't you know, obey the law of Moses, which then turns into a debate over whether or not Christ is the Messiah who you will know, like not uh, inaugurate the new covenant. And it finally actually turns into the identity of Christ, not just as Messiah, but actually as God himself. The first apology, a very well-known work of Justin written in the early 150s, um, it takes the form of a libellus. Now, what's a libellus? A libellus is a formal Roman legal petition in which you go and you petition the government, you petition the emperor and the senate, and then they go and they print a response to this along with the original petition that's given. You think, well, what's the value of this? Why would it take this form? Well, if you're thinking in the days before the printing press, this is actually a pretty good way to get publicity if you're trying to spread ideas around. So let me give you a, a quote here uh, from Men's Impartment, Partis. So in the first apology, we're dealing, clearly dealing with a petition, an abnormally long one to be sure, but a petition. What Justin has done is to adopt the conventions of a normal libellus, but greatly to expand it by the insertion of catechetical and other explanatory material. And in so doing, he has managed to hijack the normal piece of Roman administrative procedure and to turn it into a device for getting his message literally and symbolically to the heart of the Roman world. If we're looking at the first apology, the figure of Socrates looms large throughout for Justin. And this is not just in uh, the first apology, this is throughout his, his writings. So you're going to see the comparison between Socrates and his context and what Justin the Christians are facing. What's interesting, actually, is in writing to the, the emperor and the senate, rather than strictly appealing on what would be seemingly familiar grounds to them, Justin is always making reference back to the Hebrew prophets. He's always making reference back to the Hebrew scriptures. And he does so so consistently that you get to a point where you just wonder, gosh, is your audience going to have any idea what you're talking about? <laughs> and from Justin's standpoint, I don't think he really cares because from his standpoint, like this is, this is revelation. God has spoken definitively through this. And so 
I'm going to give you the truth, and the truth is going to do its work. Uh, finally, he has a second apology, which comes sometime in the, the latter part of the, of the decade, in the 150s. It's a lot briefer. There's a lot more philosophical engagement. So it's engaging specifically with saying the Platonists say this. Here's how it relates to our ideas. The Stoics say this. Here's how it relates to our ideas. It also contains a delightful little example where uh, Justin takes uh, Xenophon's story of Hercules and then uses that as a way to describe the Christian message, which is great fun. Uh, and then finally, he's martyred around 165 AD. So he's uh, beheaded with his, his companions for his faith. We'll begin tonight with a thesis. This is from uh, Leslie Bernard again. In his three works, Justin covers a large part of the theological field. Christianity is for him the highest truth, the crown of both Greek philosophy and the Jewish scriptures. Justin's reverence for philosophy as finding its consummation in Christ was of great importance for the church, for it meant that educated pagan converts were no longer obliged to deny the insights of their philosophical backgrounds. Platonism was now seen to be as valid a preparation for the gospel as Judaism has been. Now, this has not gone unchallenged. So here's an antithesis. Here's one challenge to this idea. This is from Oscar Scarsone. Justin's philosophic itinerary does not lead to Christianity. It ends in Platonism. It is not Platonism itself, but it's destruction that prepares Justin for conversion. Let's see. There we go. What I'm going to present tonight is an argument uh, in how you hold these ideas together. And I'm going to suggest that the idea of real presence can be a guide for understanding how justice thought works in these areas. And so the argument, Christ as real presence and fulfillment. But here's going to be the sequence of the argument. First, that Christ, the words, the logos, is the fulfillment of and real presence in the story of Israel. Second, Christ, the word that has created the world, is also the fulfillment of and real presence in the best of philosophy and reason, but in a derivative and incipient sense. Third, though the two are not equal, Christianity is the fulfillment of both. By the word's incarnation and continued presence in the church, the hope of Israel and the goal of philosophy are fulfilled. Now, what does this mean practically? Well, first is the priority of God's story in and through Israel. As I mentioned in relation to the, uh, to the first apology, Justin is always making reference back to the Jewish scriptures because God has spoken in a definitive and normative way through them. Second, there is at the same time seeds of the word, seeds of the logos, which is Christ himself, present everywhere. And there remains for the apologist a task to, to identify these and to separate them from falsehood. Third, this is on the relation between faith and reason, which we're going to get at throughout this lecture. Rationality, so logos, the lowercase, uh, lowercase l, lowercase lambda, sees in part what revelation, the incarnate logos, reveals in full. I'll say it one more time. Rationality sees in part what revelation, the incarnate logos, the incarnate Christ, reveals in full. I think because I'm an advent on here when somebody new comes in. There we go. <laughs> oh, there we go. Fantastic. But finally, faith is in some sense via reason. And here's a quote to that effect from the first apology. But we, whom he, God, both persuades and leads to faith through the rational powers, the logicon dynamoon, 
which he himself bestowed, do choose the pursuit of the things which are pleasing to him. Now, does this mean that you can just take reason and that's all you need? I don't think that's the answer for Justin, but reason can point you in the right direction, which is critical. So faith is in some sense divine reason. I'm going to let Justin introduce himself to you in his own words. This is a famous passage from the opening of the dialogue with Trypho. And so Trypho comes to Justin and sees him wearing the philosopher's cloak, which is kind of analogous to seeing someone wearing a clerical collar today, where you can be recognized for being, you know, for what you are. So people want to talk to people think, I'm going to steer clear of that guy. So Trypho sees him and wants to have a conversation. So he greets him, asks to converse with the philosophy, introducing himself as a Hebrew. And here's Justin's response. How, I ask, can you gain as much from philosophy as from your own lawgiver and prophets? Why not, he, Trypho replied, for do not the philosophers speak always about God? Do they not constantly propose questions about his unity and providence? Is this not the task of philosophy, to inquire about the divine? Yes, indeed, I said, we too are of the same opinion, but the majority of the philosophers have simply neglected to inquire whether there is one or even several gods, and whether or not a divine providence takes care of us, as if this knowledge were unnecessary to our happiness. Moreover, they try to convince us that God takes care of the universe with its genera and species, but not of me and you and of each individual, for otherwise there would be no need of our praying to him night and day. Then with a subdued smile, Trypho said, Explain to us just what is your opinion of these matters, and what is your idea of God, and what is your philosophy? I will tell you, I replied, my personal views on the subject. Philosophy is indeed one's greatest possession, and is most precious in the sight of God, to whom it alone leads us, and to whom it unites us. And in truth, they who have applied themselves to philosophy are holy men. But many have failed to discover the nature of philosophy and the reason why it was sent down to men. Otherwise, there would not be Platonists or Stoics or Peripatetics or Theoretics or Pythagoreans, since the science is always one and the same. When I first desired to contact one of these philosophers, I placed myself under the tutelage of a certain Stoic. After spending some time with him and learning nothing new about God, for my instructor had no knowledge of God, nor did he consider such knowledge necessary. I left him and turned to a peripatetic who considered himself an astute teacher. After a few days with him, so a peripatetic would be like an Aristotelian. After a few days with him, he demanded that we settle the matter of my tuition fee in such a way that our association would not be unprofitable to him. Accordingly, I left him because I did not consider him a real philosopher. Since my spirit still yearned to hear the specific and excellent meaning of philosophy, I approached a very famous Pythagorean who took great pride in his own wisdom. In my interview with him, when I expressed a desire to become his pupil, he asked me, What? Do you know music, astronomy, and geometry? How do you expect to comprehend any of those things that are conducive to happiness if you are not first well acquainted with those studies which draw your mind away from the objects of the senses and render it fit for the intellectual in order that it may contemplate what is good and beautiful? He continued to speak at great length in praise of those sciences and the necessity of knowing them until I admitted that I knew nothing about them. Then he dismissed me. As was to be expected, I was downcast to see my hopes shattered, especially since I respected him as a man of knowledge, considerable knowledge. But when I reflected on the length of time that I would have to spend on those sciences, I could not make up my mind to wait such a long time. It's a lot of prerequisites. At my wit's end, it occurred to me to consult the Platonist whose reputation was great. 
Thus it happened that I spent as much time as possible in the company of a wise man who was highly esteemed by the Platonists and who had but recently arrived in their city. Under him I forged a heaven philosophy and day by day I improved. The perception of incorporeal things quite overwhelmed me and the platonic theory of ideas added wings to my mind so that in a short time I imagined myself a wise man. So great was my folly that I fully expected immediately to gaze upon God for this is the goal of Plato's philosophy. Suggest you as well that this remains the goal of philosophy for Justin as well and as part of what he sees as fulfilled in Christianity. Next, Justin describes how he meets an old man by the sea who proceeds to deconstruct his Platonism with this argument, which is also found in Philo, that if Plato is correct in regarding the nature and immortality of the soul, then the human soul does not differ essentially from God. So if the human soul in its nature and is by nature is immortal, then it's not different different essentially from God. And both of them agree this is actually absurd. And so having had his Platonism deconstructed, Justin responds, if these philosophers, I ask, do not know the truth, what teacher or method shall one follow? Here's the old man. Here's a picture of him that's been discovered. A long time ago, he replied, long before the time of these so-called philosophers, there lived blessed men who were just and loved by God, men who spoke through the inspiration of God sorry, of, of the Holy Spirit and predicted events that would take place in the future, which events are now taking place. We call these men the prophets. They alone knew the truth and communicated it to men whom they neither deferred to nor feared. With no desire for personal glory, they reiterated only what they heard and saw when inspired by the Holy Spirit. Their writings are still extant and whoever reads them with proper faith will profit greatly in his knowledge of the origin and end of things and of any other matter that a philosopher should know. In their writings, they give no proof at that time of their statements, for as reliable witnesses of the truth, they were beyond proof. But the happenings that have taken place and are now taking place force you to believe their words. They're also worthy of belief because of the miracles which they performed, for they exalted God, the Father and Creator of all things, and may know Christ, his Son, who was sent by him. Above all, beseech God to open to you the gates of light, for no one can perceive or understand these truths unless he has been enlightened by God and his Christ. When he had said these things and many other things, said these and many other things, which it is not convenient to recount right now, he went on his way, and after admonishing me to meditate on what he had told me, I never saw him again, so it could have suggested speaking back to Trifo. But my spirit was immediately set on fire, and an affection for the an affection for the prophets, for those who are friends of Christ, took hold of me. While pondering on his words, I discovered that his was the only sure and useful philosophy. Thus it is that I am now a philosopher. Furthermore, it is my wish that everyone would give the same sentiments as I, and never fall away from the Savior's words, for they have in themselves such tremendous majesty that they can instill fear into those who have wandered from the, from the path of righteousness, whereas they ever remain a great solace to those who heed them. Thus, if you, again to Trifo, have any regard for your own welfare and for the salvation of your soul, and if you believe in God, you may have the chance, since I know you are no stranger to this matter, of attaining a knowledge of the Christ of God, and after becoming a Christian, of enjoying a happy life. So part one, Christ has presence and fulfillment in Israel. Going back to Trifo, uh, we can see that he was not particularly impressed by Justin's story. 
As Justin continues, when I said this, my beloved friends, those who were with Trifo laughed. He, smiling, says, I approve of your other remarks and admire the eagerness with which you study divine things, but it were better for you to abide in the, in the philosophy of Plato or of some other man, cultivating endurance, self-control, and moderation, rather than be deceived by false words and follow the opinions of men of no reputation. For if you remain in that mode of philosophy and live blamelessly, a hope of a better destiny were left to you. But when you have forsaken God and repose confidence in man, what safety still awaits you? If then you are willing to listen to me, for I have already considered you a friend, first be circumcised, then observe what ordinances have been enacted with respect to the Sabbath and the feasts and the new moons of God, and in a word, do all the things which have been written in the law, and then perhaps you shall obtain mercy from God. How does Justin respond to this? He responds by showing for Trifo in this lengthy debate how it is that Christ has actually been the real presence within the history of Israel. And he does this in three ways. First is Christ as the object of prophecy. Now, it would be uh, tedious and perhaps impossible to go through all the examples of this because Justin gives so many examples throughout the, the course of the dialogue. Some of these that you find that are uh, common, one is Christ is the new lawgiver. Uh, another is Christ is the suffering servant, the converter of the Gentiles, the king of glory. Um, it, it's actually fun to go into turn to Trifo and to see from his standpoint as a second century Jew, what he sees in Christ, but also from Justin's standpoint, what he's missing and how even though he sees something remarkable in Christ, he's unable to see that Christ is actually the object of prophecy, the one that Moses was talking about. So here, if we focus on the new lawgiver, this is Trifo's words. Moreover, I'm aware that, you're, that the precepts in your so-called gospel are so wonderful and so great that I suspect no one can keep them, for I have carefully read them. But this is what we are most at a loss about, that you, professing to be pious and supposing yourselves better than others, are not in any particular separated from them, and do not alter your mode of living from the nations, and that you observe no festivals or Sabbaths, and do not have the right of circumcision. And for the resting your hopes on a man who is crucified, you yet expect to obtain some good thing from God, while you do not obey his commandments. Have you not read that the soul shall be cut off from his people, who shall not have him circumcised on the eighth day? Here Justin responds, saying, you're so close, but yet you're not seeing that the object of prophecy is actually here. So his response, the lawgiver is present. And so who's the lawgiver? Well, the lawgiver is the prophet like Moses, going back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses says, I will, you know, God will go and raise up a prophet like me. Well, if he's going to be a prophet like Moses, he's going to be the lawgiver. So here he is, the lawgiver is present, yet you do not see him. To the poor, the gospel is preached, the blind see, yet you do not understand. So if first is that uh, Christ is present through the promises, Second is that Christ is present as the typological figure of historical events. Now, for this category, what Justin does is he points to strange incidents that you see within the Old Testament that, you know, are mysterious to Trico and his friends. And he explains them as being understandable if one knows the events that have happened with Christ. And they can see these kinds of things as shadows of the reality that is now coming Christ. And so examples, the snake in the desert from Numbers, Jacob's wives, Jonah, Joshua, Jesus is the same name in Greek, Jesus, succeeding Moses, the water at Marah and Noah's Ark. Um, we can look at one example of this, which is 
uh, the, the typological figure that is the serpent in the desert. So here's Justin speaking to Trey from his companions. Give me a reason why Moses set up the brazen serpent on the sign and commanded all who had been bitten to look upon it. Here, this is, this is restated by Jesus himself in uh, John 3, of course. And they were all healed. And this, in spite of the fact that he himself had forbidden them to make an image of anything whatsoever. Another of those who had come on the second day, this is a two-part uh, dialogue that goes and takes place within two days, interrupted me by saying, you're right, we cannot give a reason. I have personally asked our teachers about this question on numerous occasions, but none of, none of them could ever give me a reasonable answer. And here's Justin. As God ordered the sign to be made by the brazen serpent, I went on, and yet is not guilty, so in the law a curse is placed upon men who are crucified but not upon the Christ of God, by whom all have committed deeds deserving a curse are saved. So here, looking and understanding Christ, you can then look back and see Christ has been present already as a shadow in these events. Third, and this is, I think, perhaps the most interesting one, is Christ as God himself present in various Old Testament encounters. Now, what Justin is drawing in here is all of the incidents that you find in the Old Testament where he'll say, well, here's this figure doing this. So the angel of the Lord does this. And then suddenly it says, and then the Lord did this. And it seems like it's the same figure. And you're just like, what? what is happening? What's going on? From Justin's standpoint, this is because it is Christ himself who is present. It's Christ himself who has made himself manifest and is speaking. So in the, in the judgment of Sodom, the burning bliss, the wrestler of Jacob, Abraham's visitor, it's Christ pre-incarnate who has come in and has done these things. And so um, we can see uh, an analogy or the way that, that Justin goes and describes this actually has a lot of resonance with what we find in the later creole formulas that you see in the kingdom. I see it. So my friends, I said, I shall show from the scriptures that God has begun of himself a certain rational power as a beginning before all creatures. The Holy Spirit indicates this power by various titles, sometimes the glory of the Lord, at other times son or wisdom or angel or God or Lord or word. He even called himself commander in chief when he appeared in human guise to Joshua, the son of Nun. Indeed, he can justly lay claim to all these titles from the fact that he both performs the father's will and that he was begotten by an act of the father's will. But it's not something similar happened also with us humans. When we utter a word, it can be said that we beget the word, but not by cutting it off in the sense that our power of uttering words would be thereby diminished. We can observe a similar example in nature when one fire kindles another without losing anything, but remaining the same. Yet the enkindled fire seems to exist of itself and to shine without lessening the brilliancy of the first fire. So we think fire from fire, like you know, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Um, here's one example of this, which is a particularly fun one. So this is from Joshua. To be fully convinced, listen to these words in the book of Joshua. And it came to pass when Joshua was standing near Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and saw a man standing opposite him. And Joshua went to him and said, are you one of our side or of our opponents? And he answered, I am the prince of the host of the Lord. And now I am come. Joshua fell on his face to the ground and said to him, Lord, what do you command your servant? And the Lord's prince said to Joshua, take off your shoes for the place on which you stand is holy. Now Jericho was shut down and fortified and no one went out from it. And the Lord, here's the transition, said to Joshua, 
Behold, I have given Jericho into your hands and its king and all its valiant men. This is a particularly fun one because Joshua, Jesus, is of course the same man as Jesus. And what Justin is saying is here you have Jesus actually appearing to Jesus, to his own shadow. It's a bit as if it's using an analogy. It's like uh, Shakespeare created a, a character in one of his stories named William Shakespeare and then somehow figured out a way to enter his story and introduces himself to the character named William Shakespeare. That would be an analogy for what you're seeing here. So first, you have Christ as present within Israel. He is the presence and fulfillment of Israel. Part two is Christ is present and fulfillment in philosophy. So here's our question. Is the word of God, Christ, present among the pagans? And if so, how? Potentially and partially, yes. For Justin, this happens in two ways. First is derivatively from the branches of philosophy, the roots of which trace all the way back to the oldest philosophy, that of Moses. Now, there's a claim that's here, which is ubiquitous within early Jewish sources, that that Plato gets all of his best ideas from Moses. You'll see Josephus saying this, you'll find uh, see Philo saying this. Basically, all you know, early Jewish sources go and repeat this uh, over and over. And then early Christian sources go and they repeat this as well. One of the things that's interesting is that it's not just Jewish and uh, Jews and Christians who say this. Actually, the the Platonists themselves sometimes say similar things. So an interesting example of this comes from Numenius, who is the middle Platonist philosopher in the, uh, this is the, in the second century. He says this, what is Plato but Moses in Attic Greek? So uh, here's an example of this from Justin. This is from uh, the first apology. And so to Plato, when he says, the blame is his who chooses and God is blameless, took this from the prophet Moses and uttered it. For Moses is more ancient than all the Greek writers. And whatever both philosophers and poets have said concerning the immort immor sorry, immortality of the soul or punishments after death or contemplation of things heavenly or doctrines of the like kind, they have received such suggestions from the prophets as have enabled them to understand and interpret these things. And hence, there seem to be seeds of truth among all men, but they are charged with not accurately understanding the truth when they assert contradictories. Justin just repeats this over and over. So this is the first way that truth is present, that the word is himself present among the, 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 the Greek philosophers, is derivatively from going all the way back to Moses. Second, and this I think is more interesting, is internally from participation in reason, which of course is the same word for word, which is Christ, the Logos, the seed of the capital W word or the capital Lambda Logos, which is in every human being. Well, how does this work? From Justin's standpoint, because reason is present within every person that God has created, this does the, the job of the image of God language in Justin's theology, it then means that there is a ground for appeal that he has in appealing to reason and anyone who he's talking to. And so this is what he does. So this is from the beginning of the second apology written to the emperor and the Senate. Senate. Reason, the logos, directs those who are truly pious and philosophical to honor and love only what is true, declining to follow traditional opinions if these be worth it, worthless. For not only does sound reason, again, the Logos, which is the same way that he goes and identifies Christ, direct us to refuse the guidance of those 
who did or taught anything wrong, but it is incumbent on the lover of truth by all means, and if death be threatened, even before his own life, to, to choose to do and say what is right. Do you then, since ye are called pious and philosophers, guardians of justice and lovers of learning, give good heed and hearken to my address. If ye are indeed such, it will be manifested. For we have come not to flatter you by this writing, nor please you by, by our address, but to beg that you pass judgment in accordance with careful and exacting reason. Again, logos not flattered by prejudice or a desire of pleasing superstitious men, nor induced by irrational, this is a lago, so the alpha primitive literally without the word, impulse or evil rumors which have long been prevalent, to give a decision which will prove to be against yourself. For as for us, we reckon that no evil can be done to us unless we be convicted as evildoers or be proved to be wicked men, and you, you can kill, but not hurt us. That's fun. This last line is actually an allusion to Plato's apology for Socrates, because Socrates says essentially the same thing uh, when he's before the tribunal. says, you know, they can kill, but they cannot hurt me, which is very recognizable as an allusion. It's clearly easy to see what Justin is doing here. He's saying that we Christians are in the same position as Socrates, where you can kill and not hurt us. And you yourselves are now in the position of the Athenian council. And so you can go and make the same mistake that they made, or you can choose differently. So Socrates, I mentioned, is uh, very important for Justin's uh, theology. So let's uh, go forward here. Socrates, Justin will go so far to, uh, to say, is himself a type of Christ. How does this work? Well, he points to Socrates' own story and what went and happened to him. So this, this is in uh as you can say in a smaller form what is happening to we christians now writ large so and when socrates endeavored by true reason again by the true logos and examination to bring these things to light and to deliver men from the demons then the demons themselves by means of men who rejoiced in iniquity compassed his death as an atheist and profane person on the charge that he was quote introducing new divinities which is really interesting because this is actually the same thing that is said of Paul at the Areopagus speech in Acts 17, the charges that he's introducing new divinities. And so you see this with Socrates, with Paul, and now here with Justin as well. In our case, they display a similar activity for not only among the Greeks did a reason, the Logos, prevail to condemn those things through Socrates, but also among the barbarians where they condemned by reason or the word, the Logos himself, who took shape and became man and was called Jesus Christ. Well, how does this work if one's thinking of Christ's then pre-incarnate activity? This is actually fun personally. I think it was this passage, uh, uh, chapter 46 of the first apology, which is what got me studying patristics. I remember first reading uh, this uh, 10 years ago and just thinking, this is so much more interesting than anything in theology that I've come across these days. And um, if you get nothing else from this lecture, please go and pick up Justin's works for yourselves. You can find them open source online. Um, you can read the first and second apology just in a few hours. Uh, the dialogue with Trifo takes a little longer, but it's absolutely worth it. It's incredible. So here we have um, the word in the world before Christ, lest some should without reason. So this is again, without the logos 
and for the per perversion of what we teach, maintain that we say that Christ was born 150 years ago under Serenius, and subsequently the time of Pontius Pilate taught what we say he taught, and should cry out against us as though all men who were born before him were irresponsible. Let us anticipate and solve the difficulty. We have been taught that Christ is the firstborn of God, and we have declared above that he is the word of Logon, of whom every race of men were partakers. And those who lived reasonably, metalon, literally with reason, are Christians, even though they have been thought atheists, as among the Greeks, Socrates and Heraclitus, and men like them, and among barbarians, Abraham and Ananias and Azarias, Misael and Elijah, and many others whose actions and names we now decline to recount because we know it would be tedious. So that even they who lived before Christ and lived without reason, the Lagos, the Lagu, were wicked and hostile to Christ, and slew those who lived reasonably, metalagu, with the word. But why, through the power of the words of the Lagos, according to the will of God the Father and the Lord of all, he was born of a virgin as a man, and was named Jesus, and was crucified, and died, and rose again, and ascended into heaven, an intelligent man will be able to comprehend from what has already been so largely said. And since, and we, since proof of this subject, here again, the Lagos is less needful now, will pass for the presence to the proof of things which are urgent. Justin elaborates in his second apology on how it was that Christ was known to the philosophers in part. This is from uh, Second Apology 10. Our doctrines then appear to be greater than all human teaching because Christ, who appeared for our sakes, became the whole rational being, both body and reason and soul. For whatever either lawgivers or philosophers uttered well, they elaborated by finding and contemplating some part of the word. But since they did not know the whole of the word, which is Christ, they often contradicted themselves. And those who by human birth are more ancient than Christ, when they attempted to consider and prove things by reason, were brought before the tribunals as impious persons and busybodies. And Socrates, who was more zealous in, the direction, in this direction than all of them, was accused of the very same crimes as ourselves. For they said that he was introducing new divinities and did not consider those to be gods whom the state recognized. But he cast out from the state both Homer and the rest of the poets and taught men to reject the wicked demons and those who did the things which the poets related. And he exhorted them to become acquainted with the God who was to them unknown by means of the investigation of reason, again, the Laga, saying that it is neither easy to find the father and maker of all, nor having found him, is it safe to declare him to all. So this is from Timaeus 28. But these things, our Christ did through his own power. So not from just contemplating it in a secondary sense. He did this through his own power. For no one trusted in Socrates so as to die for this doctrine. You don't have legions of martyrs that go and follow in Socrates' stead. But in Christ, who was partially known even by Socrates, he was and is the word who is in every man and who foretold the things that were to come to come to pass both through the prophets and in his own person when he was made of like passions and taught these things. For this Christ, not only philosophers and scholars believed, but also artisans and people entirely uneducated, despising both glory and fear and death, since he is a power of the ineffable father and not the mere instrument of human reason. 
Justin continues talking about this opposition. And those of the Stoic school, since as far as their moral teaching went, they were admirable as far as, as were also the poets in some particulars on account of the seed of reason, again, the logos, implanted in any every race of men were, we know, hated and put to death. Heraclitus, for instance, and among those of our own time, Musonius and others, for as we intimated, the devils have always affected that all of those who anyhow live a reasonable and earnest life and shun vice be hated. It is nothing wonderful if the devils are proved to cause those to be much worse hated who live not according to a part only of the word diffused among men, but by the knowledge and contemplation of the whole word, which is Christ. Justin explains towards the end of his second apology how it is that Christ as the word has been present to all men. Praying and fighting with all my might to be found a Christian, I confess not that the teachings of Plato are alien to those of Christ, but that they are not in all ways the same as them, just as neither are those of the others, Stoics and poets and prose writers. For what each of them proclaimed was good when he saw from a part of the divine spermatic word in the Logos, what is connatural to it. But when they contradict themselves in their principal teachings, they're shown not to have secure understanding and infallible knowledge. Again, reason, the logos, the innate sense, it points us in the right direction, but it does not get us to secure understanding and infallible knowledge without the revelation that comes with Christ's incarnation. Therefore, anything good that has been said by anyone belongs to Christians. For after God, we worship and love the word who is from the unbegotten and inexpressible God since he also became a human being for our sakes, in order that, as a sharer in our sufferings, he might also bring healing. We're going to return to this. For through the presence of the implanted seed of the word, all of these writers were able to dimly see what actually is. For the seed of something and an imitation of something, to the extent that an imitation is possible, is not the same as the thing of which the participation and imitation are made in accordance. Well, sorry, I lost. Uh, I lost the thing there. In, in accordance with its own bounty. Sorry, the, uh, the way that Zoom comes together with uh, Keynote is not always exactly perfect. So continuing on in part three, Christ's presence in the church. We saw, we began with this quote from uh, Leslie Bernard. Um, and here, if, if he was in any way mistaken in the beginning, uh, he now completely redeems himself. And so here we have Christ as both teacher and power. It is true that for Justin, Christ saves men as teacher and example. But his teaching is an active power and for force a dunamis from God, which pierces the depths of the heart and mind, a burning fire which inflames man's whole being. Justin's own conversion had left him with an inner fire of love for the prophets and for Christ. Redemption is not, therefore, for Justin, an ethical or metaphysical theory, which men can either choose or reject, but the imparting to men of illumination and power which enables them to conquer the power of the demons. The whole Logos is a factor in the inner life of every Christian. Christ is not simply an external teacher, but an active power. So here we have, according to Justin, the, what was prefigured and in some sense present 
within Israel's story in which what was known in part within the best of Greek philosophy, Justin sees as now being present in full within the church. How does this work? Well, there's two primary activities that Justin goes and describes when he's talking about the word's presence within the church. Um, this is, by the way, if you have a chance to read this, this is a very uh, well-known passage. It's actually the earliest description that we have of Christian worship. And it's fascinating because it, it, it comes from 150 AD. And as you're going to read through this, you can see how similar it is if you, you, know, if you go to a Christian service, if you, if you go to, to you know, the mass, uh, how closely the, the order is followed. So here Justin is describing how the word now present within the church goes and works to regenerate those that it comes in contact with. So here it is, the word present as purifier. All of those who are per persuaded and believe these things, which we teach and say are true, who give an undertaking that they're able so to live, are taught to pray and ask with fasting for forgiveness from God or for their past sins. And we pray and fast with them. Then they are led by us to where there is water, and are, they are reborn in the kind of rebirth in which we ourselves were also reborn. For at the name of the Father of all, and the Lord God, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, they have been washed in water. And Christ said, unless you are reborn, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And how those who are sinners and who repent will be separated from their sins is said through Isaiah the prophet. So again, this is speaking to the Roman emperor and senate, but giving appeal to Isaiah the prophet, who is the one who truly foresaw these things. Wash, become clean, and put off your wicked deeds from your souls. Learn to do good, give judgment for the orphan, and vindicate the widow, and come and let us speak together, says the Lord. And even if your sins are like purple, I shall make them white like wool. And even if they are like scarlet, I shall make them white like snow. This is the Lord God who is the word who himself comes and purifies and makes those who receive him in baptism white like wool and takes away their sins and makes them white like snow. But if you do not listen to me, a sword shall consume you. For the mouth of the Lord said these things to Isaiah 1, 16 and 20. This washing, so this baptism, is called enlightenment or also translated as illumination because those who learn these things are being enlightened with respect to their mind. So we can see Christ present as the purifier. We see Christ present. So the word here, which Socrates saw in part, now present in full within the Eucharistic celebration. So here's Christ, uh, not Christ, here's Justin's description of it. But we, after the washing done in this way, lead the one who has been persuaded and is thrown in his lot with us to those who are called the brothers in the place where they are gathered. And after earnestly saying prayers for ourselves, the one who was enlightened and all others everywhere, that having learned the truth, we might be judged worthy also to be found through our deeds, people who live good lives and guardians of what has been commanded so that we might be saved in the eternal salvation. And we agree, we cease from prayer and greet one another with a kiss. Then there is brought to the president of the brothers bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. And the president takes them and sends up praise and glory to the father of all through the name of his son and of the Holy Spirit and makes thanksgiving at length for being considered worthy of these things by him. And when he has finished the prayers and the thanksgiving, all the people present give their assent, saying, Amen. 
And when the president has given thanks and all the people have given their assent, those called deacons among us, give to each of those present to partake of the Eucharistized bread and wine and water, and they carry it away to those who are not present. Now, it's interesting. So the critical addition of the first apology uses this word Eucharistized because the meaning of Eucharist is literally the Eucharisto is to, to give thanks. And so it's the bread that has been you know, given thanks for. But there's also a transformation that has happened here. So it, it makes this sort of Greek word and has it do double duty to signify that there is something that has now happened so that it is now the Eucharist. And this food, which is called among us Eucharist, of which it is lawful for no one to partake except one believing the things that have been taught by us are true, and who is washed in the washing, which is for the forgiveness of sins and for rebirth, and who lives in just the way that Christ is handed down. For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but just as Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made flesh by means of a word of God, and had flesh and blood for our salvation. Just so we have been taught that the food which has been eucharistized through a word of prayer, which comes from him, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh, from which food our blood and flesh are nourished by metabolic process. You can see what he's saying here, that what happens with the incarnation, when the word that was known in part to Socrates, which was present through the promises and types of the Old Testament, when this is incarnate in the person of Christ, this does not end with the incarnation, but this word is made present and continues to be present in the church through the Eucharist and continues to go and to transform humanity by the fullness of his presence. For the apostles and the memoirs, which they caused to be made, and which are called gospels, handed down in this way what Jesus has commanded them. Taking bread and giving thanks, he said, do this in memory of me. This is my body. And taking the cup similarly and eucharistizing it, he said, this is my blood. And he shared it with them. Over everything of which we partake, we bless the creator of all through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And on the day called Sunday, there is an assembly of those who dwell in the cities or the countryside. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for as long as there is time. Then when the reader has stopped, the president in an address makes admonition and invitation of the invitation of these good things. Then we all stand up together and send prayers. And as we have said before, when we have stopped praying, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president sends up prayers and thanksgiving in similar fashion to the best of his ability. And the people give their assent, saying, Amen. Again, think back to Justin when he was talking about when he was a Platonist philosopher, the goal that he had was to see God. Here, Justin is saying, you can actually see God. This happens on the day called Sunday. You can happen in the cities, it happens in the countryside, and you can actually have this encounter, which so transforms humanity. But what does this actually look like? What, what does participation in the word through the church actually do to humanity? Well, Justin goes and describes this. We ourselves, after being persuaded by the Logos, recoil from the demons and follow only the unbegotten God through the Son. Of old, we rejoice in promiscuity, but now embrace only temperance. Then we practice magical arts, but now we have dedicated ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. 
Then we loved above everything the means of acquiring money and property. Now we put into common use even what we have and share with everyone in need. Then we hated one another and murdered one another. And because of custom, would not even live under the same roof of those who were not of the same race. Now, after the appearing of Christ, we eat at the same table and we pray for our enemies and try to persuade those who unjustly hate so that those who have lived according to the good counsels of Christ might have a good hope with us of obtaining the same things from God, who is the ruler of all. A few concluding reflections to summarize. Um, have, uh, Henry Chadwick's work on Justin is fantastic, and uh, I think that he does a better job than I could of bringing these threads together. So here we have a few uh, quotes from him on Justin and his theology. Justin writes with a sunny, open-heartedness and innocent optimism, which is engagingly attractive. The thoughtful Christian of AD 150 contemplating the tiny size of his community and the magnitude of the forces entrenched against its revolutionary program could not fail to conclude that by any natural criterion of judgment, the prospects for the church were less than rosy. Justin remains cheerfully extrovert, confident that Christianity is the divinely planned way and will therefore win. He is the first exponent of the now familiar notion that the Christian apologist has one task above all else, namely to present accurate information about his faith. If Christianity is true, it has nothing to fear from scrutiny. The apologist must never descend to ingenious sophistries to win an argument and must speak without fear or favor as one who has nothing to hide. The rational faculty with which all men have been endowed by God is a providential instrument for arriving at the truth. Fair-minded argument will win with fair-minded readers. The only enemies Christianity has to fear are ignorance of what, it, of what it is and the prejudice that prevents men from taking pains to dispel their ignorance. History is the stage of God's acts, but these acts are not confined to Israel. Justin does not say that Greek philosophy was a divine gift parallel and equal to the Old Testament, but the sower who went forth to sow is the seminal logos, sowing seeds of truth in human minds. Christ is the principle of unity, gathering into one the scattered fragments of truth divided among the different schools of Greek philosophy, the one who brings potentiality to actuality and the teacher who extends truth beyond a narrow elite to uneducated and educated alike. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Professor. Um, so right now we're gonna be having a, uh, ten, we're gonna spend 10 to 15 minutes uh, having a Q&A session. So uh, first off, we got a question from uh, Orthodox Reader who asks, was Trifo a real person or a made up person? Was he a philosopher in his own right? It's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, there's actually a scholarly debate on as to whether or not uh, Trifle is a real person or if this is a, a dialogue in a strictly liter literary sense. Um, I think the weight of evidence points towards there being 
a real encounter that Justin had in the wake of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And I think that the, the most persuasive work for demonstrating this is a, a thesis of a guy named Timothy Horner called Listening to Trifo. Because Horner goes and points out that if you actually go through the dialogue, Trifo has a number of good points. And there's a point, there's, there's actually areas in which Trifo seems to go to do damage to Justin's own argument. Um, and it seems less likely that if this is not something that actually happened, if it's not in some sense of preservation of a real encounter that, that took place, it seems unlikely, unlikely that you would find it in the form that you do. And so I believe it's Yaroslav Pelikan who, um, who goes and summarizes it this way. He says, uh, the form of the dialogue uh, is itself literary, uh, but the, the fact of it, uh, but, the, but the event itself is, is a fact. Um, it's, it, it has a literary form, um, but it is an encounter that seems likely to have actually taken place. Um, Trifle himself, it doesn't seem to be a philosopher on his own. He seems to be a, a well-educated well Um Anyway, thank you, Orthodox Reader. It's a great question. Great. And we have another question from Patrick who asks, what is the nature of the relationship between the Lagos and the natural law? In the Lagos and the natural law, I think that the Logos or Justin would be the author of the natural law. And it, in some sense, I think that you would, I mean, some of this is more helpful if you are a Platonist. I think that you see the natural law as somehow participating in Christ himself, that there is actually Christ within the natural law and those who are going and observing the natural law, that this is not something that Christ has created that is apart from himself, but that this is actually connected with, uh, with, with Christ um, in, you know, in, in, in some way. Again, if you're, if you're thinking in, in Platonic um, categories, it's easier to conceptualize this. But in, you know, in, in, in general, just if you have a participatory framework, that's it's easier to understand, which is why Justin, of course, can see Christ as being present in some way throughout all of human history to all these, you know, various uh, figures and you know, very disparate contexts and everything. So anyway, big question. Thank you for that. We have another question from Don who asks, did Justin draw a distinction between theology and philosophy? And if not, was this due to his insistence that truth is unified? I love that question. Um, I think you put your finger on something that's actually really valuable. And I think for Justin, there's not strictly um, a distinction between philosophy and theology. I think that they are one and the same. When he and Trifo are talking about what the goal of philosophy looks like, you can just take the word philosophy out and put the goal of theology and it would be precisely the same. They both agree of, you know, it, it seems like the goal of philosophy is the, the goal of theology as well, to, you know, to know God, to know the nature of God. And, you know, ultimately to, to go and to, to, to know God, to, to look upon God. And so I think, I, I, I just, I think that's, um, I think that's correct. I think that there's not a kind of you know, distinction there. And you can just look at this etymologically and think, what, what is, what is philosophy? Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Well, who is wisdom? Wisdom is Christ. You know, Christ is the wisdom of God. And so if you truly love wisdom, then you love Christ. If you're talking about loving Christ, you're also talking about theology. So 
Um, anyway, it's it very astute. Thank you for that. We have another question from David who asks, if Christianity is presented as the true philosophy, then how does Justin conceive of Judaism? Is it an inadequate or obsolete philosophy or should it even be called philosophy in the first place? Oh, I love that. Uh, I think for Justin, Christianity is the philosophy of Israel. It is, it is the philosophy of Israel. Um, and he sees there being a very close tie between Christianity and Judaism. Um, the, the, the only real difference between Christianity and Judaism for Justin is that the figure that all of the Hebrew scriptures are pointing towards has now arrived from Justin's standpoint. Um, and in arriving, has now rendered the terms of the previous covenant under Moses obsolete. I've been thinking, you know, uh, I mean, Jer Jeremiah 31 is an obvious, obvious passage that, you know, I, there's going to be a new covenant, and this covenant isn't going to be like the old covenant because um, that covenant was broken. Um, but God's going to do something new, and he will go come and, you know, write his laws in our, in our hearts. You can just take, take that passage. Um, from Justin's standpoint, this has taken place, and all of the promises that you see throughout the scriptures, you know, promises first make it Abraham and everyone going forward of universal blessing, uh, this has now happened in Christ. It's, it's, all, it's all come true. So from Justin's standpoint, the error of the Jews is in still holding to that broken covenant and the broken covenant's terms uh, of what was, what was there under, under Moses um, without going and recognizing how, you know, everything that their own scriptures were pointing to was, was fulfilled. Um, and if you want to see this spelled out in detail, just read the dialogue. I mean, you, you can't get more detail than you get the dialogue because it's such a long text, but it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. One of the things that's interesting though for Justin is that he himself goes and says, there's a, there's a section of the dialogue, which is kind of parallel to what you get in Romans 14 with the, 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 the strong and the weak. And as far as, is it, you know, is it okay? Is it, is it licit to continue to obey the mosaic food laws and you know obey the mosaic practices and it's really interesting because justin freely admits that christians are not of one mind when it comes to this that there's some christians who think that to continue to observe the mosaic practices after the inauguration of the new covenant is itself in some way to deny christ christ's advent but he says i actually think uh, he says, I don't, I don't agree with them. I think that if there are some who are from a Jewish background who want to continue in these practices as much as you can with the destruction of the temples, of course, you can't sacrifice anymore, but as much as you want to, uh, to still continue these, these things that, you know, Moses, uh, uh, you know, had, had inaugurated, he doesn't think that that is by itself problematic. It's only problematic if you insist upon them for salvation as if the mosaic covenant were still the one that you know was was in effect and as if christ had not come and that's really what you know is uh, can can get you in trouble so anyway th thank you for that really great question we have another question from brian who asks in your own view can platonism or even neoplatonism prepare our faculties to receive the revelation of christ yes 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean that 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 honestly that that happens all the time. That happened with Justin. That happens with Saint Augustine. That actually, it's funny because I'm I'm getting flashbacks now to when I was a UCSB student and I, I took political philosophy there, which is I think my favorite class I took there. Um, and I remember being in our little tutorial session having uh, our TA, who was this guy from Costa Rica, who was really, he was great, he was really cool, going and talking about the theory of the forms and how this all goes and works. And I just remember hearing him talking, he's kind of drawing a little dagger, I think myself like, oh, I, this sounds so much like the Bible. And this actually, if I'm thinking in these terms, this actually sort of gives a language to how, you know, what I think that scripture is going and trying to, to, to say. So, um, does this mean that you know Platonism uh, again is is itself a revelation? It's on uh, on uh, you know the level of the Old Testament and like that. No, it's it's not. Um, is it purely accidental? Is there is there nothing providential in what it is uh, that's that's seen there? I I would find it hard to go into to to say that because if you just look within the history of Christianity, there's been so many people who it's it's been through through encountering the truths that are there in Platonism, where it has been, you know, the, the, the preparation for the gospel for them. And even I think for, you know, for Christians, it's, it can be helpful just to have some, some knowledge of it, just to see, hey, the kinds of things that we, you know, re accept, you know, from a biblical standpoint, uh, there's a correspondence within, within Greek thought, which both Jews and Christians, and even, you know, those who are part of kind of non-Jewish Greco-Roman culture, they acknowledge as well again what is uh you know what is um, plato but moses speaking out of greek uh there there's a correspondence that's there which i think i think can be can be helpful great and uh we have a question from Anne, who asks in what form did a thinker like justin have access to the works of socrates plato etc and did justin also make any references to aristotle So the form itself, I think it would just be books. I mean, by, by this point, you have you have codices. And so, um, I mean, you know, scrolls are around before that, but by the second century, the codex is, has come into, you know, much, much greater popularity. So it probably would have been actually within books with his Platonist teacher that he was going and studying these things. So you have the line from Timaeus, but you know, within, within this culture, uh, people just know these works really well also. So, um, you know, for, for us, we can't necessarily go and quote a line from Timaeus and expect that everybody's going to go and catch it. In that culture, you can expect there's a lot greater chance that people are going to know what you're talking about. Because these, from a cultural standpoint, these these stories are so so foundational. I'm trying to remember if Justin goes and mentions Aristotle himself. He of course talks about the Peripatetics there. Uh, doesn't have a doesn't have a uh, a very high opinion. I can't remember if he actually mentions aerosol. It's possible that in some of the disputed works um, that you would find some discussion of Aristotle there. It's been a few years since I've gone, gone through the disputed works of Justin. But in the undisputed works, um, I can't remember. I, I, I don't think he, he mentions him by name. Well, we have time for one more question. Uh, sorry we couldn't get to every question, but we have time for one more. And this one is from Nick, who asks, Popular intellectual figures today, like Jordan Peterson, draw heavily from Jungian archetypes, which is very compelling to young people. Do you think it would be fair to characterize Peterson's archetypal thought as a sort of derivative and incomplete version of Justin's philosophy, which proposes the Logos? 
I do think there's an allergy there. I do, I do think that there's an allergy there. And I think that even the way that, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not really seeing many cases where I hear other people talking about it and stuff like that. And so I, I take up kind of stuff by osmosis. But from what I picked up by osmosis, there, there definitely seems to be a kind of seeds of the word thing that's happening with, with him where, um, though he is not coming at things directly from a Christian perspective, he's yet seeing what goes and corresponds with Christ in all of these other areas and what corresponds with the truth, you know, that is, um, you know, revealed in Christ incarnate and then, you know, testified to in, in, in scripture. So I, I think, yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a good intuition. I think that there's probably something, um, analogous going on, but that's, it's kind of, it's hard to say more than that just because, um, I, I only know Pearson by osmosis and stuff. Um, but anyway, Pearson, if you're listening, I, I hope that, you know, I hope you read St. Justin, you find him to go to, uh, you know, give, give you a helpful model for how to go and carry all this out. So, so uh, this basically concludes our event for tonight. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Thomas, for your talk. And thank you, everybody, for your uh, questions. And we will so uh, like to extend our big thank you to Professor, Professor Thomas and all those in attendance. And we do hope that those who are interested will reach out and stay connected with the Thomistic Institute. Um, and so if you're interested, if you're a UCLA or UCSB student, please uh, contact us and best wishes and uh, good night, everybody. Thank you, Professor Thomas. Thank you. Bye.